0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Press show. I'm your host, Tori Gates, author of Searching for Roy Buchanan. Climate fiction has become a genre all its own, and a recent release on Brown Posey Press takes us into a somewhat dystopian world of a planet facing massive drought. Scientific efforts to create rain have gone awry, and only a few can stand the lethal precipitation they have wrought, the rainwalkers. Matt Ritter is a professor of biology in San Luis Obispo, California, an author of a number of books on the state's natural history. And now he brings us Rainwalkers. Uh, Matt, welcome to the show.
0: Tori, happy to be here. Thanks for talking to me.
1: Well, I guess the first thing we need to do is perhaps uh, give us a brief overview of your work and what brought about this scarred landscape and the Rainwalkers.
0: Well, um, I am a, like you said, a biology professor. I um, have been a biology professor in California for 17 years and uh, teach about biodiversity, climate change, uh, ecology, mostly uh, the ecology of plants. And over that 17 years, it's been, uh, it's been interesting to see like the ratcheting and up of of people's rhetoric associated with climate change, and as more and more species are impacted, or we're seeing more extinctions, more weather events, it has become more and more central to my world. And uh, I have um, a interest in writing. have Have been writing for a long time, mostly about the natural history of, of California's vegetation and plants. And uh, I thought and this could be part of a long conversation that we'll have, but I thought that potentially fiction has a way to make an impact on people's lives that nonfiction doesn't. Stories are very important. And in fact, we are learning more and more about how humans don't learn at all from data and actual mm-hmm. information. They learn from stories. And so uh, in my effort to try to get people excited about potential change and uh, and and change that leads to some kind of solution towards this climate crisis wherein I turn to fiction about that specific topic. And to be That's honest with a, you, Tori, I didn't know really that I was writing cli-fi or climate fiction until um, until talking to the publisher about that.
1: Well, we've um, put in uh, into circulation a few uh, novels in, and I suppose we've we've sort of pioneered a whole new thing called climate fiction. I had never heard of it until um, I started to see some of uh, our fellow authors with these, these kinds of stories. And I thought, oh, well, and then while I'm not a huge fan of labels, uh, it's one of those things where it's sort of become a niche thing. But as you say, right now with the um, – impact of our planet's uh situation with regards to global warming or climate change or whatever you'd like to call it you know it's become vital despite some people's efforts to say it's not even happening um was there ever any point that maybe you were just frustrated with dealing with people who were being naysayers and said i'm going to write this or how did how did the the process of the story come about for you
0: yeah, well, let me answer the first question first about the uh, naysayers. And uh, and and no, I rarely deal with or see naysayers in the sense that um, I, I am in California at a university. Call it a bubble, call it what you like. But you, but but the existence of climate change has not been controversial in the scientific, biological, physical science community for well for thirty years. The controversy that you see is usually in, in uh, sort of general media. General media goes for controversy. If you can find a consensus among 5,000 scientists about a, a subject and you can find two quacks that uh, will say, well, maybe that's not happening, then that's a controversy. It's not really in the scientific community a controversy, but uh, that tends to get more clicks or sell more newspapers or whatever. So I don't see a lot of um climate deniers or whatever you want to call them. And I don't think many people are. I think that the absence of action associated with climate change that we're seeing has nothing to do with denying it. It has to do with uh, the same things we all face in our day-to-day life, which is if you're going to face a very difficult problem, especially something that's off in the future and uh, you have to make lifestyle changes associated with that, most people aren't going to make those. And I'm very realistic about that. The, you know, it it could be equated to smoking, right? People smoke and you know that it potentially hurt you off in the future and potentially and maybe not even you, maybe, you know. And, and so that is what we're dealing with with, with, with climate change. It seems like it's like the perfect problem. It's too difficult for people to comprehend the whole thing. It moves at too slow of a speed and therefore you end up with uh, no action. And, and, and it's totally understandable I get it the The idea behind the story was was this that imagine if we could be confronted with the best case or worst case scenarios. How would we respond if we if we knew those best case and worst case scenarios? Is it possible to tell stories about best case or worst case scenarios and then can you motivate people in that way to to learn about what's happening now and potentially how they would respond if they what if they were dropped in the middle of a, a broken up America with a desolate desert 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 climate and how would they respond how do scientists affect the, the 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 atmosphere or their environment and what could people do about it those are all questions I wanted to try to answer and then what would a human story look like in the middle of that context
1: right well, one thing's for certain, you dropped us into that nightmarish landscape. And one of the first things that people have always told me or almost always told me is, I want to go somewhere in your story. Take me to this place or take me somewhere I've never been and, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. make me think I'm there. Well, you landed us there. And now California, the valley, as you, as you put it, um, You certainly wrote about where you knew. Um, Was there anything – was it your familiarity with the land that made it easy for you to write about it? Or was there some other choice that you took to uh, set it right there and and kind of recreate it?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I do know about it in the sense that the Salinas Valley, which is where the story takes place, is only Mm -hmm. uh, uh, 50 miles north of here. I've spent a lot of time in the Salinas Valley. But I also am a big John Steinbeck fan, and uh, and Steinbeck, you know, a lot of his his stories are set in the Salinas Valley. Uh, mm-hmm. East of Eden would be a good example of one set in the Salinas Valley. And I, I, I thought, well, w- what if it was a dystopian version of this bread basket or salad bowl, as the Salinas Valley is often referred to? The Salinas Valley actually currently produces more leafy green vegetables than any other place in the world. And so it's a very mm-hmm. fertile Valley and very dependent on a very specific climate to, to grow broccoli and lettuce and all of that. And so, so uh, the, the, the setting of the novel was to take that and ramp it up and make it more extreme in which that the future people are facing drought scientists and the, in the face of the of this in this long drought, they do what is called aeromicrobiology. It's actually it is it's a real actual field in which um, bacteria have the ability to nucleate ice at different temperatures, to actually create ice at, at lower or higher temperatures than than normal. And imagine if you could put transgenic bacteria into the, in, into the atmosphere, a version of cloud seeding, basically, in which they would uh, nucleate ice at a different temperature and make, make rains more frequent. Well, that's, that's interesting and, that's, and that, that's possible. But then what if, in an attempt to manipulate nature, scientists made a mistake and made rain toxic on people? And so that, that to me, was an interesting conundrum to draw people into the valley being very productive because of the water. Now the water has changed and the water is toxic to people. And how are people going to respond to that? That And how, how would life change for everybody? What if every rain was toxic? How would people respond? How would our cities change? How would our planning change? Would we eat each other alive or would we come together as a community? It would be interesting.
1: Well, it certainly uh, seemed like it split. And um, there was sort of um... – Sort of a mad max type of feel, as uh, our hero Willie Taft, is uh, trying to make his way through this landscape and he 's an interesting fellow who has an insider 's view because he was on one side and suddenly he 's on the other. Tell us about him
0: yeah well he is a he 's a war hero that is uh, was like many young men in the valley uh, were brought into the the military, not by choice, but 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 uh, military service is compulsory in the valley. He happened to be good at what he d- did and uh, commanded a large number of people. Ended up in behind borders and warring territories and returned. Saw ugly things during his time in service for the valley and then returned to a small agricultural town called Gonzales in the middle of the valley it's an actual town that exists now and wanted to live out a quiet agricultural life with his wife and and their daughter the -hmm. problem with that is that um, the upon his return to Gonzales uh, the valley is becoming more and more desperate the rains that are toxic people are more and more frequent There's also rumors of these people that you referred to in the title of the book, which are rainwalkers. People are capable of surviving out in the rain. And now people who could survive out in the rain would obviously be very powerful. They can operate in the frequent rains when other normal people can't. And so the Valley Administration is interested in locating those people. And their plan to locate more people who are rainwalkers is to begin to screen people in the rain. Those who people who don't survive will won't survive, but then they will be able to find rainwalkers. And they do this at at different schools in the valley. Meanwhile, people are collected for service. More and more people are collected for service or public service or service in the oil fields that run the valley. And so it's getting darker and darker and the Valley administration is becoming more and more desperate. And so Will Taft, our hero, is in, is in that situation. And what ends up happening is that he and his wife are collected. They're separated from their daughter, who stays at the school in Gonzales, and they end up in the San Argo oil fields and labor camp working there. They escape the labor camp together, and they end up, Uh, She ends up getting injured and dying during the escape attempt. And that's where the book begins with him burying her next to the Salinas river and his now journey to get back to her, his daughter at the school in Gonzales before these, uh, these screenings and uh, before she gets collected, before the screenings happen, before he gets separated further with her, she's in grave danger and he's in grave danger.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. And his his odyssey continues. Uh, it's interesting. He picks up uh, he picks up sort of a traveling partner, Zach. What does Zach play? It's not so much in opposition, but he seems like a color point to Will in a certain way. What what does he serve in this story?
0: Yeah. Well, Zach is younger than Will. Zach is uh, more naive than Will. Um, Zach is a, a a traveling companion for him, really. Uh, on Will's journey, he ends up either purposefully or accidentally saving Zach and his grandparents. And, uh, and Zach, like many young men in the, in the valley, have nothing to do before they get collected. Zach is injured. He, he has a hurt leg, which we learned throughout the story how that actually happened. And then uh, Zach asks Will to come along with him. He he begs Will to allow him to come along with them, and so Zach, in many ways, represents uh, um, a different type of character than Will, and that Will is cold and calculating and, and and very dangerous himself, and Zach is much less so. Zach is 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 a warmer, younger character that uh, that sees things differently and in a more maybe hopeful and naive way than Will does. Mm-hmm.
1: And the it, it seems like there's a, there's a real it, – it's sort of that the buddy relationship grows deeper as they go. And it's, it's clear they kind of teach each other a little bit. And it's like Will always it strikes me very much as very headstrong and I know what I'm doing. And yet there's points in the book where he sort of maybe not openly but subtly realizes oh, Zach's right about this kind of thing.
0: Exactly. Yeah, and – uh and I, I like that aspect of his character, where he uh, he doesn't end up knowing everything. He has he he, he he has good intentions, but he oftentimes doesn't end up knowing everything. Early on in their uh, their interaction, one of the things that actually gets Will to allow him to come along with him is that Zach admits to Will that he is a rain walker, that he has the ability to survive in the rain, and that's intriguing to Will. He's never met somebody before is uh, is that way. And that we we learned throughout the story, throughout their journey towards Will's daughter, that um, how Zach came to learn that he was a rainwalker and what the li- life is like for somebody who can survive in the rain. Mm-hmm.
1: And then with the uh, other side of things, interesting character ben harrison this is like here's the internal struggle here's a scientist who is trying to do the right thing but now he's become disillusioned and suddenly there's it seems to him or it seemed to me perhaps that there there's no longer a mission here it seems more of an obsession with order um how does ben come to his conclusion that that something is very very wrong here
0: Right. Well, it's this interaction between Ben Harrison, who's the Valley Science Minister, and the the, the Valley Manager, who's the leader of the Valley, and the uh, and the they they came through the ranks of the military together. They end up in these leadership positions, and they have a completely different view on order, on the future of the Valley, on the way that governance should take place. And, uh, and, you know, I feel like these types of things happen in, in government situations all the time in which people have significantly different views about the way that things should be run. Should, 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 pe- should government protect individuals or should government uh, and allow for individual freedom or should government protect the society and uh, impinge on people's individual freedom in order to have a better, a better society. And that's, a, that's a, a, I think it's a deep philosophical difference and it's in almost every debate we have in in our government, these types of debates are often resolved by decisions of the Supreme Court. And, uh, and so what if you had two characters in the leadership of this Valley that really had those different views about it? And, uh, And then this is in the background of of Ben Harrison's character who's a scientist who comes to really discover in his own view of the valley that the way they are treating themselves and their people and their fear of the external world is actually potentially worse than the external world. And I'm sure that there are a lot of uh, societies who've gone through that kind of soul searching situation in which we are treating our citizenship so poorly in the effort to protect it or make or or in the in the effort to create safety in there and safety the results of safety are actually worse than the original danger then that's a problem, and so I wanted to mm-hmm. bring that to the forefront
1: well, I think you brought it it it's it's sort of human nature has always been through that, and it reflects perhaps right now here with a presidential election that's coming up and we have such a contentious situation, the, the conflicts of party versus party and then it's party within party. And and then it yeah. comes back yeah. to, and it even comes back to like, um, I had to read Anthem when I was in junior high school and Ayn Rand's. Uh, conflict mm-hmm, was something mm-hmm. that my teacher touched upon, which was the man versus nature debate, but also man versus oneself. It feels like we have some of that here.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I think I think we do, and and um, we push each other away from the center often, and I think that's happening now in our politics. I think it's happening, and it's happened throughout history. Is that uh, is that if we scrutinize political views and look for differences and then those differences are more more interesting from a commercial point of view then you end up getting more and more extreme views and i think that's happened. a lot of nuance is gone in our in our in our public conversations now and you can see that with the democratic debates in which these people on the stage are ultimately very similar in comparison to their running mate, but they are pushing each other further and further away from each other. And I think, I think it was Freud that the phrase, the narcissism of small differences, and you Mm -hmm. see some of that happening where people become more and more divided, divisive towards Mm -hmm. each other, even though they're very similar, because that is what's interesting. It's not what, what unites us. That's interesting. It's what our differences that are interesting. And, well, yeah, and I wanted to, um, you know, and, and and I wanted to bring those sort of political ideas, current day political ideas, into an extreme in this valley, and it gives you opportunity in fiction to do that. The valley is surrounded by a wall. They're dealing with fear of an unknown external force, but they're also dealing with fear within the valley. I tried to bring it back to the to the current day U.S. and see how it, how it it. it degraded over time and how the environment uh can degrade a country. All those things are um are in the book, I hope. Yeah. That was one
1: of the most interesting things was we never really know who the enemy is. It's like we never really see them or hear from them and I thought it's like we're just it seems like we're just fighting everyone or anybody that we don't recognize.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's another and, thing and yeah. Isn't it like that sometimes? I mean, mm-hmm. is, it, is it just just fear of the unknown is what a uh, real uh, thing is that's going on, and that's what people are 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 propping up as an enemy, the unknown, no matter what that is. And you realize other people are just like you ultimately if you give them a chance and you
1: and that's spend the time with
0: them. It's that's it.
1: That's it. It's sort of like you know and then there's sometimes it's the enemy within and i think again we are facing that and i think a lot of the characters are seeing that in rainwalkers there is this and it it so reflects today in a lot of different areas one question i have with regards um to uh, well i guess i guess it's mostly um having a career of writing non fiction how different is your approach to this project, based on the fact that we're talking pretty much about a real thing? We're talking about the real world thing. We're talking about real solid science.
0: Hmm. Um. Yeah, it's it, it's a different approach. Uh, I I uh, in my my nonfiction books, I, I am much less speculative, much more careful, much more researched. Uh, this book this rainwalkers is well researched in the sense that i i knew about the details and i wanted to give very real details to put people in scenes and so on but 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 the the ability to speculate and then write things as if they have already happened even though they're they're speculative is a totally different approach than nonfiction and uh and a, and a, it's it's almost as if you're writing a history and you get to make up the history as it's happening mm-hmm. and and for me that's uh, that's a real pleasure and interest in, and and uh, it, it's also difficult in a way that nonfiction is not difficult I think and that that you have to get the characters from here to there and how are you going to do that and how is that going to be done in a meaningful way and and how. Can those characters interact with each other? And I think that's really what separates really poor writing from not so poor writing is the ability to, for people to connect with characters. The characters have – everyone has purpose. Everyone is going somewhere and doing something, and, and they're interacting in realistic ways. And that's just not easy to pull that off for 250 pages. Yeah. Well,
1: yeah, and it's it, it has a double-edged sword. It's like you get to make the rules. You're creating your universe, but in my case as well is it's still here. It's still on Earth, so it's like I can make the rules, but I still have a few that I kind of have to follow.
0: Yeah, and I think any good – so if we call cli-fi a very specialized version of science fiction – uh, and or dystopian science fiction you have a very mm-hmm. specific set of rules in that as well as far as far as i'm concerned i mean i see a lot of bad science fiction and the way that bad science fiction is bad is they don't rep- recognize their own internal inconsistencies and they mm-hmm. they're breaking rules that they set up that um that is just, uh, inappropriate and hard to watch and the writing is bad. And so the real necessity to set up a world in which you have freedom to set up that world, but once you're in the world, there are rules in that world and you have to follow those. You can't break out of them or invent something new to get everybody out of a situation. You know, Star Trek is Mm -hmm. very classic with that inventing some technological thing right at the end where they can escape and, and, uh, and they didn't bring it up the entire time. So that, that happens. But also, you know, comic, comic type of science fiction is often very internally inconsistent where you'll, you know, Spider-Man can stop a speeding train, but then he punches people in the face. So he's got the strength to, to, to stop a speeding train, but with some being with that strength would, explode at somebody's face, you know? And so, so, but that's not, yet he's in a real fight, right? After you've stopped the train, it doesn't make any sense. So, so those, you, you, the internal consistency is is hard. It's actually hard to get it right.
1: Yeah. And I mean, for some of us, like, I mean, I grew up with Star Trek too. and, And it was like, I think it was David Gerald who wrote the trouble with Tribbles episode and he, he wrote yeah. quite a bit in his uh, on his own that he pointed out in one of his books about that very thing about how the the television program especially would just um, play fast and loose with the truth and I suppose that has some or the truth within the system yeah. and yet you have all these different writers they
0: just reconfigure the reaction core and they're good and they can get out yeah that's uh, it, uh, okay it is, it is very interesting.
1: Yeah, and it's and it's each writer has, that comes in with an episode is is coming up with their own thing, and they're not always yeah. consistent with the characters too, and that's that had to have been difficult to work on that show. Um, I know that certain people discussed it. I know Leonard Nimoy wrote about it at some length that he just felt like. Uh, people do. Some people just don't understand my character. They don't even understand this mission. They're just writing this thing, and and right, you know, yeah, they're I, and writers
0: it, on the show, right?
1: Yeah. How did this happen? Yeah. So it's like, but yeah, I I, I understand that what you're saying because it's like in my own writing, it's like I am still writing. I'm trying to write real characters. I'm trying to create people that mean that have meaning. And they have a reason mm-hmm. for being there, mm-hmm. even if they don't say very much or do very much. They're still filling a role, and it's like I have to, I have to make each person a little bit different because each human being is different. And yet, sometimes you wonder. Um, you certainly yeah. gave us yeah. a lot of interesting characters, um, and you gave us some diametrically opposed. When we've talked about Willie and Zach. Been sort of idealistic, but not really quite sure where he's at, and um, you know. So it's uh, then you have the fun. I wanted to I wanted to talk about or I wanted to ask about the bounty hunter, the guy that's like on the hunt for mm-hmm. Willie
0: Millard. So where did
1: this one yeah. come from?
0: <laughs> yeah. So um, so let, let me just make one comment about about the writers on shows, and, and since right. I wanted to mention that, is that. Um, You know, when I'm watching a movie, I will often look at the the which writers get credited in the in in, in the movie. And if you see big blockbuster summer movies that tend to have crap writing and more explosions and so on, you'll have six, sometimes seven writers that are involved in those movies. Really high quality movies very rarely have more than a single writer. And a single director, and they are oftentimes the same person because it's one person's vision, one person's consistency, one person's idea of a a world and not written by committee. And so so just alone with the number of writer credits on a a movie, you can tell the quality of the writing, I think, because it's very difficult to get four or five people together with the same vision. and, And usually they're just trying to solve each other's problems. So, yeah. uh, Millard Fillmore is a bounty hunter character who is also himself a, uh, uh, a war veteran served w- and knew, knew and served with Willie Taft, our hero during the war. And, uh, I feel like every good story's got to have a little bit of a chaos element in it. <laughs> and, and, and Millard Fillmore, Represents that in the sense, like not sure what he's going to do. He's very dangerous. He's, he's very capable. Has this sort of just general disregard for other people's safety and lives. And, and, uh, and is after will and is after will for spe- specific reason that he's been assigned to return him to the San Argo oil and labor camp but for more general reasons he's after will and that real will to him represents uh, something that he wants to capture, that he wants to uh, bring back. And he feels, I, 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 the way I envisioned him over somewhere is feeling almost slighted by anything positive in the world because he, he himself has been forced to do such awful things and live an awful life. And also he, he wa- wants to his own pride be able to beat will and that is, that all plays out during uh during the book and his chase of will and uh, is is interesting in the sense that they come into contact with each other we learn about their hist- their shared history and the secrets that they both hold during about what happened in the war and what their history is and and that is plays out in the Current day aspects of the story as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, we're speaking with Matt Ritter, the author of Rainwalkers, here on the Brown Posey Press Show. And uh, Matt, I'd like to ask um, one of the things that's always important uh, for anyone is uh, their upbringing, and also I find that what people around them read. Listen to talked about that sort of thing is always really formative. Tell us about your your growing up and um, what it was like
0: yeah I, uh, I'm a seventh generation Californian and I grew up in uh, a very rural place in Northern California called Mendocino county. It's about three hours north of San Francisco up in the redwood forests and I graduated from a very uh, small high school. I graduated from a public school with 16 people, one quarter of which are dead or in jail. Uh, It's uh, it's only four people, but uh, I like to say that um, I got out of there. And... um, it was a it was a logging town that then became an agricultural town and then both of those industries sort of dried up first by the loss of all the redwood trees and the using up of all the environment environment basically and the using up of all those resources and then ultimately uh the wine industry really um came in and consolidated a lot of land in that area and and then uh Meth, methamphetamine hit it pretty hard. My dad my dad was the, the small town doctor and him and my mom delivered babies all over uh, Mendocino County. They delivered about 200 babies in their time as midwives and doctors. And my mom was the administrator for the local, they ran a community health clinic, basically. And small li- Being the son of a small town doctor is an interesting thing. People brought everything you can imagine by the house for him to take care of at all, time, all kinds of nights. And all times during the during the night, and uh, I had three brothers, so we lived in this uh, very rural area, and we had a good time. And it was it's just it, it is interesting and vastly different than I have a currently have a 13 year old and a 15 year old and I'm living in San Luis Obispo, which is not a big town, but it's got 45,000 people in it, much different mm-hmm. than the 800 people that were in the town I grew up in, and just interesting to see how different life is now for my children than it was for me in the 1970s. And, uh, and, am I'm, I'm happy about that upbringing. I, I grew up next to a wooden boat builder who ran a, a business called secret Harbor boat works. He taught me woodworking very early on a, uh, which is a lifelong uh, hobby. And I actually worked as an apprentice for a famous woodworker in Santa Barbara between when I was an undergraduate and when I went to grad school Came out of that that sort of back to the land, very agricultural small community, and went to UC Santa Barbara in, uh, as an undergraduate, and got a microbiology degree there. Wanted to, which was which is also fascinating. I left UC Santa, uh, I mean le- left the small town in Northern California, got to UC, University of California at Santa Barbara, and stood in a line with more people than were in the town I grew up in and it was just a culture shock and it was awesome and as an 18-year-old boy to be a, uh have 4 or 5 years in Santa Barbara during that time was was truly wonderful from there uh, I met my wife at, at Santa Barbara and from there the two of us went uh to UC San Diego where I got a PhD in developmental biology specifically mm. um developmental biology of plants I studied corn and I did genetically modified, uh, made genetically modified corn. I was very interested in agricultural and agricultural improvements through technology. And and that's where I initially got interested in human manipulation of the environment and, and how agricultural technologies could really change the way people lived and how technologies in general could change the way people lived. And there's some of that in this book. And from there, I came here to San Luis Obispo, where where I, I won the job lottery. I got a a, a faculty position, and uh, as a as a faculty member in the biology department, where I teach classes in ecology and botany and the things I mentioned earlier. And it's been a it's been a great run, and I've been writing all the time. That's what you do as a faculty member: where you write and you write and you write, then you read and you write some more.
1: <laughs> well, it's interesting that uh because my background in writing largely through broadcasting is journalism and I've been I write all the time, but it's not always what I want to write. I'm writing, you know, news copy, I'm editing news copy, I'm writing wire copy. I've done that. I've um and the energy that I disperse doesn't always go into what I want to do. Um, Is it any different, when you were working on Rainwalkers and you started to work out in this path, was it, did you feel you had to alter your writing style or how you approached a project to, to, to make this interesting story, to make this exciting and all that?
0: Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. So I, like you, have not always written everything that I want to write or everything I'm writing is not something that I want to be writing part of part of your job as a faculty member is, is writing, you know, scientific papers, which is great. And I enjoy that. I was the editor of a journal that California Botanical Society's journal for five years. And there it's a thankless job of writing and editing other people's papers. And, and uh, so, so yeah, I have a method for writing uh, fiction and that is I get up early every morning. I spend, an hour to an hour and a half writing every morning uh, when I'm home. And so I can usually get, I travel quite a bit, but I can usually get 280 to 300 uh, days a year of morning writing. And if you do that every day uh, and, and click the keys every day, stuff builds up and it takes me, Rainwalkers took me, to create the first draft was probably about a year. Year maybe mm-hmm. uh, maybe fifteen months. Uh, Rainwalkers is actually my second novel. Uh, the The first one, uh, uh, one called Halo Around the Moon, is also uh, going to be coming out soon. That one is more is is a less straightforward, more literary uh, uh, sort of upmarket fiction type book about uh, about crime and real crime and and uh, and is. Uh, well, you know hopefully will be received well and and uh, I wanted to write rainwalkers because I got this idea I was really disturbed by what was happening I I wanted to write about climate fiction I wanted to write about uh, I wanted to speculate and it was um it was it was fun and it was interesting and, and and um that that method that I mentioned of just writing every day and being very consistent about it has really generated a lot of words. And, uh, and, and people wonder, like, how can you write so many books and so on? And the answer is just slowly, like a train, just grinding and grinding yeah. towards, towards the finished product. And, and uh, I can't do things in big old spurts and spells. I just, um, I, I, I just pick it up every day. And it's fascinating. If you go to the same place, I have a little desk where I go to write the same, every, in the same time every morning. If you go to that same place and you do that every day, you ramp up very quickly to where you were the day before. You can actually, I think you could write a novel in half-hour spells. If you did it every day and you did it in the same place, you would it, you would, be right back in it almost immediately on the next day. People feel like they need hours and hours to write stuff. And you as a journalist, you must know, you don't ever get hours and hours sometimes to write stuff. You just got to do it. You got to do it quickly.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And and there are times when you are under the gun and it's like, you need it now and you just have to click the keys, do, do it. You hit it and you just do it as best you can with what you have in those minutes or whatever time you, you are allotted And you just give it your best shot sometimes. Sometimes the first draft is what you're going to have to run with, and then at the same time, most of us don't keep to the script when you're doing the news live or something. Um, A couple of my colleagues are very good at this, and I have no idea how they do it. But they can take their own copy or someone else's, and they know what they're reading, and they don't even know what they're reading. They just read it, and then they improvise and improve it as they're going, it's almost like an actor. It's like you, you get a script, but then you it's start. It's an skill, awesome Yeah. It is. And it's it's something you learn. I mean, I've I've gotten better at it over the years, but I remember people I've worked with that could just do it. And their timing was just impeccable. And you would never know that they were stumbling or pausing and going, in, and or in the back of their mind, they're going, what in the world did this guy just write? How am I going to read this? And then they get through it. <laughs> yeah. And
0: yeah, um, that's awesome.
1: Well, it can be. It, I uh, remember the
0: first can. time I saw Gar- Garrison Keeler do that. I watched the Prairie oh, yes. companion live once. And the, the whole news from Lake Wobegon and the whole story, I pictured him having it all written out and so on. He's got none of it written out. He's sitting there at a microphone telling these very eloquent stories and using all this great language and none of it is written or it's been, it's from notes and it's just an incredible skill of storytelling that some people have storytelling in the moment.
1: Yes. And there's, there's some people that are just capable of, he's a great example of it. He is someone who has great confidence in his Craft that that he could just go up there and he improvises. You look at you watch improvisational theater or improvisational comedy, um, and you wonder how do they yeah. adapt? And we do that. Um, we do that to some extent with, with with broadcasting. I mean, when you I mean, I started out as a DJ, and you know, you you think that you know what you're talking about, and sometimes you're able to mask it pretty well, or you're able to say something different. And it comes from it comes from instinct, and it also comes from just sort of going with it. Because you might think that you just did a horrible break, and then it takes a while for you, you to sort of look back at it and say, you know what? Nobody noticed. Nobody noticed you didn't know what you were talking about, right. and you made it work. Right. <laughs> and you yep, get that happens for a while. to me with
0: lectures sometimes.
1: Oh where, yeah, where I, I, I
0: think I just gave a bad lecture, and students end up loving it. And You know, you give three three or four, sometimes five lectures a week, and Mm -hmm. you get good. You can't do 10 hours of prep for every hour of lecture, and you get good at at, um, teaching people with less and less prep and trying to be inspiring and also prepared in the sense that you're organized. And it is. I can see that skill developing more and more with time and practice. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: And the other thing, too, is um, in terms of writing, I think everybody's style is a little bit different. You seem to use a very dif- disciplined kind of style, which is cool. Um, people ask me the same thing. And, and my style is kind of different in that when I'm working on a new project or when I'm writing a project, I am a person that will just start writing and I will not stop. And the problem is wow. I could – I. I can do it, but I have to do it every day the same way you do. But the thing is, I'm working and I'm doing all these other things every single day. I won't stop until the draft is done, but I, uh, my style basically – I stole the idea partly from the journalist Bob Woodward, and I adapted it. And What I tell people is when I'm writing a new book, as I'm doing right now, I'll write, the first, I'll write a chapter a day. And it doesn't matter if it's five pages or 20 pages uh, because I'll have an outline and I'll have like a treatment sort of thing. And I'm like, okay, this is how much I have to do today. And I'm already pretty much know that I'm going to write it. I know what I'm going to write in this segment. And maybe I get a little distracted or maybe I get a little undisciplined, and I am that. But I'll get it done. And once mm-hmm. that's done, I'm done for the day. But if I've got the time and I'm just in that groove, I'll just keep going. And um, right. I'll just right. say whatever I get after that's a bonus. And
0: yep. there are days yep. that pass. That's a, a cool technique.
1: And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I'll have periods where I can't write, or I just don't have the time, or and it's like, okay, that's all right. You wrote ahead the other day, so don't worry about it. And I tell people, don't don't get too down on yourself if you don't write much or mm. it's just not coming. Uh, it will, mm-hmm. but again, like you do, mm-hmm. you sit down and you get at it, and that's that's pretty cool. Um, yes. Now, here's here's another question I must ask you. Um, in terms of editing for Rainwalkers or for any of your work, how difficult is it to get to have an editor maybe take your work and and cut it up and slash it apart? And it's like. Um, having someone go through your work with an unbiased eye, I guess that's what I'm trying to ask. <laughs> how difficult is yeah, that for yeah. you?
0: Oh, it is, um, uh, how difficult, it's not, it's not often that difficult. And, and actually, um, with the two novels, I've, uh, there was very little uh, editing, um it wasn't, you know, no no major changes that, that that any of the editors of that wanted to see or, like, this whole character is unrealistic or this whole plot line doesn't work. I'm pretty harsh mm-hmm. on those things initially. And so um, I've been lucky not to have whole sections of what I've written thrown out by other people or, or totally, totally disregarded. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, you know, any editing that I can get from from friends is, is important. That's a gift. And, uh, you know, professional editors or editors for, for publishers. I usually mm-hmm. pay attention to what they say. You know, I, I, I try to, um, I'm not writing entirely for myself. I'm writing for other people and mm-hmm. somebody who's good at understanding what audiences are going to be interested in and what they're not. You got to listen to those people and you got to take their advice and, and what is it saying? You got to kill your darlings. You can't really uh, think that anything is um, undefendable in your writing. And and uh, I'm I tend to because I actually was an editor for for a long time. I tend to be pretty brutal and good at it with my own stuff. And I took a I I, I the book by Stephen King, which is on writing, was pretty. Oh, yes. uh oh, yes important to me when I was in, in, I think I read it first when I was in high school and that technique of just like grinding out a terrible first draft has been really important for me and being a shit writer, but a very good editor. That's like a, a thing that I think creates good writing.
1: And that's, that's the thing. Um, I always tell people I bash out that first one and just get it done. And I tell people your first draft is going to suck. It's okay. Yep. 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 That's uh, and It's funny that's too the same because with me. yeah, it's funny. My sister gave me On Writing several years ago, and I'd. It's funny. I'd I'd heard of the book, but I I never read much of Stephen King's work, and I I, not a horror fan. I just am not. And right. But uh, yep. she had she had come across it, knowing that it was pretty important, and it was. It was like, so I tell people this is a handbook. This is it's like um, one of my one of my mentors one of my old bandmates and the, the fellow who helped edit searching for Roy Buchanan Dick Huntington who was no longer with us Dick had was a very talented poet and writer on his own hook and he I remember watching that there was one thing he would do he would always have a thesaurus an actual book right on his on his his desk. And he Mm -hmm, would always mm -hmm, have it at mm -hmm. hand because he just knew that I know words, but I don't know all the words. And he -hmm, would, you mm -hmm. know, he would pick it up and just start digging through it and be like, there's got to be a better word. I've used this already. And I, I took that lesson and I use thesaurus.com an awful lot.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I do too. And I, I, uh, I use an actual paper thesaurus as well. And, uh, And you're right that that there are people who are better with words than I am. I try I try to, and I tend to try to write as simply as possible. Complicated ideas that are as simply written as possible. I think are what um, what readers like, and not not fancy flowery writing. I'm not very good at that anyway. I want to Mm -hmm. write very straightforward. I want to uh, play with things like suspense and and action in ways that people can understand it very well and, and then put characters in difficult situations and, and, you know, and have a, have a, have a strong voice in that way, have a, have a, a very commanding sense of what characters would do. And, and, you know, I try to achieve that, try to be as simple in the writing as possible. And you can't help as a writer occasionally try to show off and try to, like have this is this beautiful sentence and all these fancy words. And those are usually the most fun to write and the least fun to read. And you're a musician. So you probably understand that there are songs that are that way that are fun to play, but really hard to listen to a lot of, you know, a lot of really avant-garde jazz, I feel is that way, you know, that, that unless you're, you're, really in that world, it can be hard to listen to initially. And so, uh, but, but wonderful for those players and those musicians to play with each other. And so, so there's some of that in writing and, you know, I try to avoid it. I try to try to be straightforward and simple as possible.
1: There's a certain attunement, I think, musically that you have to have for certain things. And sometimes a listener just, if, if a listener falls into it the same way they fall into your book, You've got them the same way. it's like they become invested in it, even if they don't think they're going to be and I've seen it time and again that it's it's really cool when you bring somebody to an art a musician that you really admire and they have no idea who it is, but you know they have an appreciation of music in general, and it's really nice to see mm-hmm. them come away with, "Wow, they were really good, <laughs> and yeah. I hope yep. to get the same yep. thing. I hope to get the same thing in what I write, and uh I think that's what we all look for is is get people invested, get them emotionally involved,
0: and you could yeah, definitely feel yeah. that
1: through through Willie's struggle the whole way through,
0: yeah, yeah, well, hopefully people will recognize that that a, a little bit of that character and the struggle in themselves and uh yeah and in the
1: time we have left now you you talk about your previous work halo around the moon um mm-hmm. when are we going to see that do you think
0: hopefully within the next 6 months the book is uh the 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 book is done it's been edited drafts are the the cover art is being made now and so uh it's coming along you know it, it, as you probably know in writing a book that it's a huge long exercise in patience everything just takes yes. so long in order to <laughs> go from when you type the end to when you have a book in your hand is a massive amount of time and so that's just um that's just the process that I'm in now and I'm 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 uh about well, I'm editing a third one as we speak. So I wrote a, a, a third one. It's very early on. I'm just coming up with the first draft of it. I'm done with the first draft, but going through and editing the first draft myself. And so that has been a fun project too and I'm cranking them out.
1: Well, that's cool. And uh, so uh you are carving out another you're carving out another path in terms of it's um I don't know if it's a dual path, but your work in education, and then this, um, it, it's, you know, I've, I have, I get the question all the time of how do you do all this stuff? And it's like, you just do it. And especially if you find something good on break it, by break. Might, and, and, and yeah, and you're, you're feeling, I can tell you're feeling that you're feeling that accomplishment and you're feeling like you have a new way to tell people something. You have a new way to, to not so much educate people, but to maybe enlighten a little bit.
0: Yeah, I do really, truly believe in the power of stories and to, to not only educate, but to enlighten. And, uh, you know, I don't really think after being 17 years as a professor that you can teach anybody anything. You can't sit in a room and tell them stuff and expect them to learn it. Everything I've ever learned, I learned on my own from work. And so what do you do is if somebody somebody's interested in education? You try to inspire you inspire people to want to learn things on their own and get more information. And I think there's very few things that are more inspiring than a really great story. And so that's the, uh, that's the direction I'm trying to take with some of this fiction writing.
1: All right. Well, Matt Ritter, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
0: Enjoyed talking to you. Thank you.
1: All right. You've been listening to the Brown Posey Press Show. Our guest, Matt Ritter, is the author of Rainwalkers, a tale of
0: climate fiction. I'm your host,
1: Tori Gates, author of the current Brown Posey release, Searching for Roy Buchanan, as well as previous releases, A Moment in the Sun and Live from the Cafe. Thank you for joining us. This is the Book Speak Network. <laughs>